This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Episode 12 this week of Play by Playcast, coming to you from location. We are at the Buckhead Marriott, watching commercials as Indiana plays Florida International tonight. Getting set for the Ball State football opener, which comes your way tonight if you're listening to this on time, which would be Friday morning. If not, uh, you can check the ticker for scores and highlights. Uh, but in Atlanta, as college football season has officially geared up, NFL season is just around the corner as well, so we've got another NFL guest on the podcast this week. Wayne Larravee is the voice of the Green Bay Packers, formerly the voice of the Chicago Bears, formerly the voice of the Kansas City Chiefs, formerly the voice of the Chicago Bulls. He is well-traveled, has had some awesome jobs and some awesome experiences uh, throughout his professional career, which include, but are not limited to, uh, certainly uh, broadcasting Super Bowls, uh, he broadcast the 85 Bears Super Bowl. He broadcast Michael Jordan. A lot of Michael Jordan. We're going to talk about that a little bit toward the end of the podcast uh, as well. So a lot of different things to cover with Wayne Larravee, including the origin of his catchphrase, so to speak. The origin, the meaning of there's your dagger. So we'll talk about that with Wayne Larravee. But as we do so often on this podcast, where we begin today is where Wayne Larravee began. And that is how he broke into this broadcasting business. The cliff notes, the footnotes of his broadcasting career. And for that, we have to go to Boston, Massachusetts, when he was a collegiate at Emerson and then moved out to the Midwest to start broadcasting. Wayne Larravee on Play-By-Play Cast this week. You know, in, when I was in college, I got a lot of commercial radio experience, uh, just, you know, filling in uh, um, at a station in Great Barrington and then doing some high school uh, sports, that type of thing. So when I came out, I had, uh, when I came out of college, out of Emerson College in Boston, I had, um, you know, some commercial radio experience, and that, that certainly helped in me getting my first full-time job, um, which was uh, out at uh, KSTT in Davenport, Iowa. Part of my duties there was to uh, be one of the broadcasters for Iowa football. So that really got me going. What's it like working in the Big Ten? And I know it's a different time, but I mean, to be on that kind of stage right out of school. Uh, that was neat. Um, you know, the thing that it did, uh, this is back in the day when big schools had more than one origination of their broadcast. So, you know, in Iowa, they had like 13 because they that was, uh, you know, such a rabid fan base. But almost every market had its own broadcast. So that gave, you know, there were more opportunities in that regard. And, um, you know, I happened to get one of them, and, and it was great uh, because, you know, it, it gave me a chance to do big-time college football. Uh, and I had done basically high school football both in Texas when I took a semester out of school, which was a great experience. And then, um, you know, when I was in school working on weekends at the, the radio station in Massachusetts, able to get some experience there. But this was the big-time. This was a big-time college uh, football, and, and it was a great experience. How did you wind up from there uh, in Kansas City? Well, a year after I took that job, I, I got a you know chance to go to Kansas City. Um, 
what happened was I, I was reading Broadcasting Magazine, which at that time was one of the major trade publications, and the, the uh, chief's job was listed as open by uh, KCMO in Kansas City. So I sent a tape. Of, they, the prerequisite was that you had to have major college experience and it, no, you know, at least major <laughs> college experience. So I did. I mean, I figured what's bigger than the Big Ten. And so um, I sent him a tape and then got a form letter back. And, and um, you know, a couple of weeks, about a month or two later, I saw the same magazine, saw the job was still open. Well, I had the form letter and I had the guy's name on it. And uh, so I called him and asked if I could reapply. And he was kind of surprised about that. But he said, yeah, go ahead. So I basically sent them the same tape I sent them the first time. And I guess this time they listened to it because, you know, I was only about 22 years old. And I'm sure when they first got my application, they said, well, they just, you know, he's a little too young for what we're looking for. But anyway, they listened to the tape and they kept uh, asking for more and more tape and that type of thing. And the process took about three or four months because I think they had to convince the chiefs that this was the way to go rather than hire somebody from out of market, a big name to come in and do the games and leave on Sunday night. Uh, they wanted to, the station wanted to have somebody there who was going to be part of the community, part of the station, that type of thing. And it took a while to convince the chiefs that, uh, that I was the guy to do that. What are you thinking as all that's going on? Is it one of those uh, convincing yourself you're ready for it? Or, I mean, did you feel that, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to take that jump to the NFL? Well, you know, I, I just was happy to be involved in the mix. You know, that was the thing, you know, trying to get, move up the ladder. The hardest part is just finding out when the job, where the jobs are and are they open and can you get into contention, that type of thing. So um, for me, you know, that was before I had an agent or anybody like that that would kind of bird dog that stuff. Um, you know, that was the big thing. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like I'd have a shot at it, but, you know, again, it depended on what they were looking for. And um, the station was looking for somebody to come in and I think a younger voice and someone to come in and really be part of the whole thing. What's it like being in the NFL at that age? Uh, what did that do for you? How'd that help develop what you were? Well, you know, it was kind of, uh, you know, awe-inspiring, I guess you'd say, in that you're only out of school a year or so, and now you've got this big job doing the Chiefs. And um, it was great. Uh, tremendous experience. Um, really met a lot of great people. And uh, the Chiefs had a great staff at that time, Marv Levy's first year. And uh, his whole staff and Bill Polian was in the personnel department. And, um, you know, all of us got to know each other quite well. And, um, I, I thought it was a great experience from that standpoint. And, and also, you know, I was kind of on my own and here, here I am in Kansas city now. And, um, it, it was great. It was just, uh, you know, one of the experiences of a lifetime. What are you kind of figuring out, uh, in that time period as well? What are you learning? What are you picking up uh, as you're going in those early years? Well, you're trying to do the games as well as you can and as accurately as you can and descriptive. You know, you're always working on description and that type of thing. And um, to me, that was the, the big part of it. That was the big challenge. And, um, you know, back before the days when we had uh, video available right on our laptops, we didn't even have a laptop. So, you know, it was hard to get to – you had to name, memorize the names and numbers and stats and that type of thing. And that was a process that was not easy um, to do and – uh, you know, that was something you had to learn how to do and how to prepare and study and, and be ready for the game on Sunday. But uh, I thought it was great. And, and, you know, the thing about it is the Chiefs weren't very good back in those days. But for me, it was exciting just every game I had got a chance to do. Where'd you grow most as a broadcaster in that span? I guess in terms of learning how to deal with people and, you know, the, the fact that you were on that kind of a stage or you're going to have people that liked what you did and people that didn't. 
Um, you had to understand that, and uh, you know that that's uh, that's all part of the growing process, and also working with different people on the air. Uh, that we I had several different partners. Um, the first partner I had uh, died in, in mid season uh, that year. He was a big uh, television personality in Kansas City by the name of Bruce Rice, and he had uh, a heart uh, condition and died of a heart attack rather suddenly uh, about midway through the season. And then, um, you know, they brought in several other people to work the games, and, and eventually they brought in Len Dawson, and, and that was a great experience to be able to work with him. How did you go from there to Chicago? Well, you know, the Chiefs games, I work, I've always worked for the station. I've never worked for the team in all my years in the NFL. Uh, but the station, you know, was coming up in the last year of its contract, and so I was being proactive, and I saw the job in Chicago was open, so I said, well, why not give this a shot? And uh, just as a backup, I never really anticipated anything would come of it. And, um, you know, so one thing led to another, and I got in the mix for the Chicago Bears job. The games are moving from WBBM to WGN, and, uh, you know, that was uh, the station wanted to hire its new, a new broadcast team, that type of deal. And and so, uh, you know, I got involved with that. And by the time I was three quarters of the way down the road to that job, uh, you know, the Chiefs and KCMO agreed on a new deal. And so I would have been able, been able to stay there. But what I was trying to do is make sure that if the uh, station in Kansas City didn't come up with a deal with the team, that I had another job to go to. And that's where how Chicago kind of came about. So what's the what's the secret to being an NFL radio guy? Because to be two for two that early in your life has got to feel fairly rewarding yeah you know you raises your expectations i guess and and uh that type of thing but you know the move from kansas city i was pretty much painted into doing just the radio for the chiefs whereas in chicago i got a chance to do a lot of different things um you know i worked for a great company tribune broadcasting uh, probably at the premier radio station in america at that time in the mid 80s through the mid 90s there was no uh greater radio station locally on any market than WGN. It had everything. It had, you know, the Bears. It had uh, the Cubs. It, it, you know, had DePaul and Notre Dame basketball. It had, uh, you know, on the TV side, you had the Cubs and, and the Bulls at that time. And so, you know, I got a chance to do a little bit of everything and both radio and TV. And, and it was a great, the Chicago was a great experience of the most, the best 14 years of my life. The Packers job was one that they came to you or, or you sought them out? How did that one develop? No, I, I sought them out. Um, you know, I had always grown up as a kid, a, a Green Bay Packers fan, and and I always felt that if I had a chance to work for or, you know, broadcast the games of one of my childhood teams, that that would be a great opportunity. That would be something I, I've, I've always wanted to do. And the Packers, since I my career was trending toward football rather than baseball, um, you know, the Packers were a job that I kind of always had in the back of my mind. And when that job came open, uh, Jim Irwin, who had been here for over 20 years broadcasting the games, when he announced his retirement, uh, yeah, I was interested in that job. What was, I mean, take me back a little bit. I mean, you say your career trends a little bit toward football more so than baseball. When you got into this, what did you want to do and and who did you want to be? Uh, NBA basketball. I thought I'd be an NBA basketball radio TV guy. And, um, you know, I did the Bulls for 18 years on WGN-TV, but um, it never really trended beyond that. So, you know, that's something I think uh, when I was in college, that's what I always aim, was aiming for was basketball. I, I thought that was the game to cover, and that was the one I really wanted to do. And, um, you know, today I do some radio for Westwood One and in the tournament and the NCAA basketball during the season. 
but not as much as I'd like to do. I, I really think I could be a, a great radio broadcaster on basketball if I had an opportunity to do like 82 games like some of these guys in the NBA do. Describe for me, if somebody's never heard a Wayne Larravee broadcast before, when they turn on the dial, uh, what are they getting from you? Oh, boy, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about that. I think you should probably ask somebody who listens. Um, but I'll tell you what my thought process is when I'm broadcasting a game, and that is to try to make sure that you know where the ball is, what down it is, how many yards to go. Um, if there's time, you know, describe the formation, who's where, and then describe the play. And, you know, it's really not brain, it's not rocket science. The best broadcast, you know, everyone goes to the highlights, but really if you're out there in a car driving along, and I always try to think of the, the uh, police who are out in their squad cars driving around doing their job and maybe listening to the game in the background or, or uh, the truck driver or, or whoever, maybe they're, you've got a family in a van going from one place to the other listening to the game. I always try to think of those people who don't have a picture in front of them when I do radio. And so my job is pretty, uh, pretty elementary. It's, you know, describe, set up the play, describe the play, give the situation. Um, you know, none of us give the score nearly enough on radio. Um, I try to do that. Uh, but um, the only guy I've ever heard that does it well enough, that gives the score enough, is Mitch Holtis down in Kansas City doing the Chiefs. But beyond that, there's none of us give the score nearly enough on radio. Uh, but that's what I try to do, make sure people know where the ball is. So I've got a finite checklist of things for every single play uh, that happens in that game that I have to, that I feel I have to go through uh, when I describe the game. How do you approach that in terms of, I don't say variants of it, or uh, I've only got X amount of time. If I'm going to set up a play and I've only got a couple of seconds, how do you prioritize what you're looking for most and what's most important to get out there? Down in yardage, um, yard line, uh, where the ball is, those are the top things. And then if you have time, you know, sometimes the, the color guy goes a little long with his uh, recap of what happened on the previous play or a description of it. Um, and that's understandable. And then, you know, or maybe they go in quick offense. Uh, a lot of times they do that in the NFL today, no huddle offense. And so, you know, you don't have time to describe where everybody is. Maybe it's just receivers left and right type of thing. So you have to modify as you go along. Same thing in basketball. I mean, you can't describe every bounce of the ball, every pass made on, on a play, because if you did, you would only confuse the listener. Um, the, uh, the thing with football is you only have a finite amount of time to, to describe, to set up a play. And if you're really pressed for time, then you have to modify how much you set up. How long did it take you to find a comfort zone with that, so to speak? Uh, that evolved over years. I mean, it, it, it evolved, you know, from my, my broadcast in, uh, in Davenport, Iowa, to Kansas City, to Chicago. Uh, a guy by the name of Dan Fabian, who was, a, uh, was my boss in Chicago, had a great ear for uh, radio play by play. And, you know, he helped me out a lot. He would, he would point out things like, you know, uh, you've got to say this, or you've got to mention this, or let us know what's happening here. That type of thing. It was, he was really good. And I, I still have a, a piece of paper, um, that I look at every time I go into do a broadcast that has a checklist of things we went over after my first bears broadcast, a preseason game in St. Louis, we met the following Monday and, and he went over some things and I still have that list that I go through. Do you mind sharing what, what are some of the things that you still find relevant even now this many years later? Well, you know, just 
pacing sometimes, you know, uh, trying to be somewhat conversational, um, you know, accommodating the color person, um, you know, making sure that, hey, when, when the official comes to the microphone to, to, you know, we need to hear that. We need to hear what the penalty was, that type of thing. Um, and then, as I mentioned, the down and yarded stuff, um, I thought, you know, that was where he he really harped on that. And that, that's where I started crafting that uh, checklist. That's all on that piece of paper. How do you handle leading into your analyst and, uh, you know, explaining what you see and, and leaving something for the analyst as well? And kind of where does that gray zone begin and end from, you know, Johnson ran this kind of route, ball fell incomplete. Uh, how much do you say? How much do you leave to be said by them? Well, you know, I did a lot of TV football. Also, it's very different radio to TV and just the call of the game and the flow of the game. And what I, I find on uh, television is the analyst is the centerpiece, uh, you know, because people can see the play. The play-by-play guy, his job is merely to set it up, get us in and out of breaks, set up the, uh, you know, basically not the play, but, but frame the play with words. And the analyst is the featured piece. And so, you know, but on radio, it's wholly different. It's the play-by-play is, is, you know, you're painting the picture, and it's the analyst who adds a little color to it. You know, um, I find on radio, um, especially with – with people I've worked with. Yeah. Once in a while you have, you know, you have some crosstalk. There's no doubt about that, but a lot of it play to play. I mean, he knows when I'm done, um, I've, you know, set up third down and four yards to go. And then he jumps right in on radio. There isn't time for the analyst and the play by play guy to have an ongoing discussion. If you're going to get number one, the analyst description of the play, uh, the reason why it happened and then back to the play-by-play guy in time to set up and then call the next play. So I don't find as much interaction on radio as I did on television. It's more of a conversation on television. On radio, you're so uh, tied into and focused on the description that you don't have an awful lot of time to banter with your uh, uh, with your color guy. You know, uh, hey, yeah, you do. I mean, there's no question about that that comes up. But I think where I work, the 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 level I work at now, the analyst knows when to jump in, and he doesn't need me to set him up. How do you balance uh, what you say as far as physically the words when it comes to like football jargon? Um, you know, I've had some people say you could use more, sound more like a football tape, so to speak. Um, but then you get, you know, I, our our kick returners on punts, if they don't want to field it, will yell poison. Um, just to tell everybody to get away. And I said, you know, he's calling out poison. He's throwing his hands in the air. And somebody listened to that and said, I don't know what that means. Um, How do you balance what you're going to say that's football terminology versus describing that in layman's terms, be it bootlegs or inside zones or whatever the terminology might be, uh, find that medium between the the, the educated and, and normal person listener, I guess, for lack of a better way to say that. I uh, I try to keep it fairly simple. I mean, let's be honest. Most people don't know what a lot of that stuff is. They don't know what a pistol formation is. I try to describe it. If I, start, if I see a team like the Packers played a lot of pistol two years ago when Aaron Rodgers had a bad calf, uh, what I would try to do, I'd mention the pistol, but I'd also say, you know, set back behind the quarterback, um, uh, you know, with a with a full back to the right side that of, of the quarterback, that type of thing. I tried to describe um, what the pistol is, you know, so the quarterback five yards back from the center running back, Eddie Lacey, right behind Rogers, John Kuhn to his right. 
that kind of thing so people could could picture it and you know um because most people you have to understand don't understand the terminology and sometimes i think color guys more than play by play guys it's wonderful to do all that football jargon and people sit there and say wow he knows really knows what he's talking about but they don't know what you're talking about and and this is therefore the message is lost sure how often do you read i mean when you talk about describing the pistol how often would you give the entirety of that or would it be as often as possible Maybe uh, once or twice on a uh, on a on a drive or something like that, you know. Um, but that's you can't do it every time because you don't. Number one, you don't have time. Sure. Um, how often have you sounded like? Or how long have you sounded like this? Sounded like this? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> when when did you kind of when did your voice come into a, a spot where you you were you know, comfortable with it? Um. I guess the more you hear it, the more comfortable you are. It's different than it was 30 years ago. I, I know that from listening to tapes every once in a while or hearing highlights. Um, but no, I, I, you know, I think we sound different to our, ourselves than people who are out there listening to us. You know, um, that's I, I don't know. I mean, my voice has always been about what it is. Do you, I mean? Do you do anything? Have you done vocal? you know, coaching or vocal exercises or things like that? Or is your voice, are you just, are you, are you, you? No, I'm just me. That's, that's how I talk. So, yeah. I mean, obviously when you're describing something, you're in a different type of um, frame of mind and voice, but um, nonetheless, uh, you know, it's, you really, you can't sound like somebody else. I think, you know, years ago we all tried to sound like Marv Albert on radio because he was the best, but um, I, I don't think you can do that, um, you know, very long. Are there things that you do that you're conscious of, though, on the air? I mean, controlling, I mean, kind of control the instrument in big plays situations or things of that nature, um, using your voice, using your inflection. Yeah. Uh, can you kind of walk me through, I don't know, some of the things that, that you do as far as using it as an instrument? Yeah, um, I, I've often said this to people. I, you know, you can uh, uh, he, the inflection of your voice can tell the, the listener more than than words in many cases on many plays, and uh, I, I think that's how you describe. You know, that's how you make a running play come alive. It, depending on on the inflection of your voice. I mean, if it's a simple dive into the middle of the line, that's one thing. But if the guy uh, hits a hole and explodes out of it, you know, the inflection of your voice, not just the words, but the inflection of your voice, really, um, I think, uh, uh, paints the picture so much better for the listener. So, yeah, I, I think voice inflection is is key and especially describing big plays, but on any play for the most part, you know, whether you're up or down or whatever, um, that inflection can make a big difference. Is it something you're conscious of while it's happening, or is it one of those things where it just is over the years become kind of part of how you broadcast? Was there I think over the really years it becomes it? second nature. Um, maybe there's some, you have to kind of, um, I don't know, uh, ramp up to it earlier in your career, but I think as the uh, years go on, I think that's just the way you describe a game. Where did, uh, I mean, I, I know it came around in 2001, but, but wh- how did, and there's your dagger, become something that kind of had its, its cult following? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a basketball term, and I, I was doing a lot of basketball at the time, and it just kind of, you know, it's one of those things in a football game 
there comes a point, at least I feel this way. I, I kind of know when a game is over. I know when a team is going to be, is dead. Um, and you know, it just from watching the game, it just from, it's a feel, it has nothing to do with X's and O's and it would drive the football people nuts. But, um, you know, you you get a sense, you get a feel, uh, and you know, sometimes it's, it's a number, maybe it's a two score game and there's just not enough time left to, to, for the other team to catch up. Or you can tell that the defense has the game well in hand and, and, uh, you know, the, the opposition's not going to make up a 10 or a 20 point deficit over the course of the last quarter of the game. But, um, you know, it's, so it's a field type of thing. And, and I, it just kind of happened. It just, I, I remember Brett Favre hit Bubba Franks on a pass in 1981 to put the Packers up by, I guess it was uh, 21 points in the fourth quarter of a game against the Baltimore Ravens. And, and I said, and there's your dagger. Um, and that's, that kind of stuck from there. How did you make the conscious decision? All right, week two, we're going to do it again. Or week three, we're going to do it again. And when did it kind of barrel into uh, what it's become? I don't know. I mean, it, it just, you know, I started doing it because the people reacted to it. And I started doing it a little bit because, you know, I was just looking for that point in the game when the result would be there. And and so I started doing it a little bit. And then people really picked up on it. And then there are times when I don't do it. And people ask, well, when was the dagger? And so, <laughs> you know. It's gotten to be that kind of thing. But, you know, there's some games where there isn't a dagger play. There isn't a play that basically ended the game. Maybe the game was over early in the first half, you know, and um, one team showed up and the other team didn't, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, or or in the case of, like, last year, the Hail Mary in, in Detroit, I mean, you know, wow, that was just like, <laughs> yeah. you didn't need to say dagger there. I mean, God, what, what more did you need? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because it's one of those things where it's, it's a quote-unquote catchphrase, but if it's not necessary, you, you just you lose it, and it is what it is, which yeah. is nice. Yeah. Um, how much do you still listen back to yourself? I listen usually um, during the season a little bit, but mostly during the off season, like around June or so, when I can put on a um, uh, you know a, a tape and and you know listen to it as a listener would, because I don't know what's coming up next. The problem with listening during the season, I'll listen for a few things during the season each week, but um, most of the time, you know what you were thinking back then. So your mind goes right back to where you were describing that play, and it, it, it you don't get the same effect. So I wait for months afterward, and then I'll listen, and I'll see how, you know, how did it sound? Because now I'm listening more as a listener, and I get a lot more out of that. What are you? What are the few things you're trying to pick up when you listen back during the season? Um, you know, being on top of the play. Uh, you know, I think the inflection. Uh, really, I, to be honest with you, what I listen to, especially during the regular season, overuse terminology, and we all do that. Um, and you know, did I set the play? Did I give the down and yardage? Did I go through my checklist? That type of thing. Those are the things I look uh, look for during the season. What about off season? just the general flow of the game and, and, you know, was it, you know, did I do a broadcast that was enjoyable to listen to that kind of thing? Uh, did I understand where they were the game and everything else? Do you ever get, I mean, does it, is it weird sometimes? Do you, does it bother you? Like, do you listen to something back and even months later say, God, I wish I could have done this differently. Or I wish I could have done that differently. Uh, what's kind of the mindset you take when you, when you hit play? Yeah, you know, um, if I do a game and I say, gosh, that was a really good broadcast, I won't go back and listen to it because I invariably will hear it and it won't be as good as I thought it was. 
And, you know, so you can beat yourself up. Marv Albert said that one time. You can beat yourself up listening to tapes and critiquing yourself down to the nth degree. But I think that's why it's so much better to listen months later in the off season when you can just hear a broadcast. You're not listening or looking for anything. You're just hearing what it sounded like, and I think you get more out of that. Was there a turning point for you career-wise where you kind of said, I'm now comfortable you know, I'm not overthinking it. I'm not thinking too much about it. I'm now at the point where I feel like I can hit, you know, we hit air and whatever comes out of my mouth, I'm confident in because I now know that I've, I've got my feet under me and, and we're ready to roll. Well, I think, I don't know if you ever really feel that comfortable. I think every year, every game, you, you kind of build up to it. And um, no, I, I don't take uh, things for granted like that. So I'm sure some guys, feel like they do. And maybe it sounds like I do, but, um, I really don't No, I kind of, uh, there's an edge you have to have, I think, to do a job like this. It's a performance. It really is. It's not unlike, uh, you know, something done on a stage. It's so you have to have those, you know, that edge, those butterflies, that type of thing. The thing you have, I guess, more so than you would earlier in your career is more confidence. Uh, in what you're doing, but I think you have to understand you got to put in the time and the work. It doesn't just happen. Uh, it's not like riding a bike in in that regard. Are there things that you still have to be? I mean, what are the things that you're still most conscious of when you go on the air? That being said, uh, just making sure I'm on top of the play, have the players okay. right. Um, you know, the mistakes we make on personnel identification probably stem more from misreading numbers, which happens. And especially with the uniforms today, they, they're stretched type of fabric, and sometimes an 8 can look like a, a 9 or a 6 can be an 8, that kind of thing. Those things are the hardest things in the world to get, especially from where they have you broadcasting NFL football nowadays. We've never been farther from the action. How do you handle those? If you realize you've gotten it wrong, what do you do? You have to correct it, basically, you know, and, um, it's tough. The worst place to work is Washington, D.C., and um, it's it's just incredibly difficult. You're low, you're in the end zone, in the corner of the end zone, and it's just really hard to get perspective on the play and to see people, just to see it. I use field glasses on occasion, and uh, sometimes that's not even good enough. Difference for you, uh, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, uh, but from radio to television, uh, and I know you've gone back and forth, uh, What's the difference for you, and how do you make sure that you keep that separation so that if you're doing a radio game and then you've got to turn around quickly and go on TV, um, you're able to draw that line and make sure you're, you're in the right medium? Um, for me, it, it was a lot easier to you know, get into the TV uh, medium and uh, to understand and feel that. Um, the problem was when I went from TV on Saturday to radio on Sunday, okay. the first couple of plays, I had to tell myself, well, wait a minute now, you're not on TV. <laughs> you got to be a little more descriptive here. You need to, you know, so I'd have to go back to the basics. But um, TV, it just, it, it's a lot easier from the standpoint of play-by-play, but it's a lot more difficult from the standpoint of, of you're in a group of, 40, 50 people, because you've got camera guys and you've got a producer and a director uh, that you've got to be on the same page with, your analyst, um, the game happening. There's so much more to TV. I, I, I emerge from a telecast a lot more tired mentally than I ever do from a radio broadcast. Yeah, I was going to say, I, mean, I, I did my first real kind of TV exposure was this past year, um, and I, I felt like it was A, more draining, but B, more pressure, because... On radio, I, I always felt like you're in control. You're just you're saying what you need to say. And in television, I'm always thinking, 
you know, first and foremost, am I talking too much? Uh, you know, and I think that kind of overrode everything else, but it was just this pressure of you're always in your own head as opposed to just letting it flow. Yeah, um, how do exactly. You, how do you combat that? Well, I mean, that's a challenge, and that's that's what I always liked about uh, doing two games in one weekend, one on TV, one on radio. There was it, It's such a different mentality um, and a different call, and people would hear my call on, on sa- uh, Saturday and not realize that, that it was me doing the game because Sunday I sounded totally different, and you have to. Um, television is a cool medium. Radio is a hot medium, and that's always been the way. And, um, but you know, the, the, the hard part is you've got to be on the same page on television with so many different people to make it work. And that's the hard part. Um, now the play by play stuff is a lot of it's clerical. It's getting you from the commercial, um, uh, back on into the game. It's getting you from the game to the commercial. It's transitioning to the, the uh, analyst and maybe setting him up a little bit more on television than you would on radio. Those are, you know, that those are wholly different uh, uh, responsibilities and requirements than you have the next day on radio. Where, as you mentioned, it's you. You're in control. It's it's you. It's a uh, uh, engineer. It's a color guy, and that's basically it. How did you figure out the right amount of talking on television? You know, that's hard to do. Um, it's difficult, especially when you come from a radio background. Um, and there is that tendency, and a lot of guys do it, to, to overcall the game on television with more radio description than normal. But, um, you know, you just have to kind of understand that, uh, you know, hey, Eddie Lacy went into the line. That's, you know, you could just mention Lacy, and, and you don't have to tell them he went off right tackle or right guard or whatever or up the middle or anything like that. Now, guys do on television on occasion, but um, you don't have to do that, you know. Uh, that's people can see that is it just learning to check yourself too because e- even beyond just calling the play just talking too much or saying too much or even overdoing a story because you feel like you've got the time because you don't have to describe the play um how do you build that comfort of kind of learning the flow well um you know, television is about stories and storytelling more than uh, anything else because you have sometimes you have features lined up. You have a sideline reporter you're going to go to on something, and uh, you're developing. You know, maybe you're talking more about what you heard and the coaches talk about in that you're meeting with them. There's a lot more to it um, than just describing the play because people can see that play, as we mentioned on television. But um, I think that's the uh, the preparation is different for television as well. There are things you concentrate more on when you're on TV than you would you wouldn't pay much attention at all of those things when you're on radio because you know you don't have time for that on radio. I'm curious about that. How does that all come together? How much of that is you showing up and saying these are things I want to talk about? Producers saying this is what we're going to talk about. Uh, and then finding the right point in the game, is it you getting in somebody's ear and saying, hey, I think it would be cool to do this thing here? Or are you just kind of steering at the at the behest of uh, who's in your headset? Yeah, it's a collaborative effort. Um, usually it's if you have a good producer, you've talked to him during the week. Um, you know, there are things we all have. You know, the analyst will have some stories he wants to, to get out there. There's certainly the sideline person will. And and the play-by-play guy as well may have come across a thing or two that's interesting. And you do that in your pregame, uh, your, not pregame, but your day before meeting. You get together and you, you have your coaches' meetings. 
you meet with your uh, team, your director, your producer. They're all part of the coaches' meetings as well. And then you meet afterward and you decide, okay, this is what we're going to do in the open. This is what we're going to do during the uh, uh, first quarter. The first sideline hit will be this, and we're going to go along on this story and that story, and we have these things built. And if the game gets out of hand, there's a whole other um, rack of stories that you might go to. I don't want to take uh, too much more of your time, but I did want to pick your brain on a couple other things real quick, Um, especially with television also. uh, Being on camera for you, um, I've used this word a bunch of different times, but comfort for that. uh, How how long did it take you to to develop a comfort being on camera, interacting with your analyst on camera? Um, I feel like sometimes they put you on camera for, for me, uh, and you always feel like you have to sit up a little bit straighter and then you turn a little bit stiffer. And there, I feel like I can walk into an unnatural phase. How do you avoid that? Um, that that's the, for someone who's just starting out in television, that's the hardest thing to do is the on-camera. And I remember when I first started doing it back in the early 80s on the Missouri Valley Game of the Week, I was working with a brand-new analyst, Bob Ortigal, who went on to a career doing the Dallas Mavericks. But um, it, it was it was something we rehearsed and we rehearsed, and it was the most I would have to say um, the most uh, stressful part of the entire broadcast was the on camera at the beginning of the game. So it's something you just get used to as you go along, and you get a little more comfortable with it. But uh, since some people pick it up better than others, but it takes a lot of time. What's it like calling a Super Bowl? Oh, uh, that's great. Um, you know, the Super Bowl is it's the culmination of everything. And it just, um, it, it's one of those days you can't ever take it for granted because you, you know, I was with the, one of the greatest teams in the history of the NFL, the 85 bears. And we thought they'd be in many super bowls and they never got back or even close to one. So it's a great day. It's a, it's an, a long day, but it's a wonderful day. And, uh, the thing you have to remember about a Super Bowl, as far as your broadcast is concerned, you've got to hit the high notes because that's about all anyone will talk about or replay uh, the outside of that game. Yeah, how do you keep yourself level in that situation, too? <laughs> it's hard to because, you know, I thought when I, my first Super Bowl was the uh, uh, Bears and Patriots, and I thought I was just too high on that, just too uh, over the top um, on that. And the Packers-Steelers game 25 years later, uh, I felt I had a little better command of. What's it like watching Michael Jordan that close up? Uh, phenomenal. I mean, that was the, you know, that's a high point in your career when you get to see a player like that up close and the things he did. And, um, you know, we never took it for granted. We we knew it wasn't going to last forever, and it certainly didn't, but it was great while it was going on. What's it like calling games for something like that as well? When I mean, when you're watching that, where arguably the best player that's ever played the game. Um, what's it like watching that and broadcasting that night in and night out? Yeah, it was like you were doing a big time. Well, we were at that in those days. Uh, WGN was a super station. You're doing a national telecast, and you've got millions and millions of, li- of viewers, and that's the big thing. Um, you know, when the Bulls were the biggest deal going on, it was like following a rock band around. I mean, one time <laughs> we're in Atlanta, and they moved their game from the arena to the uh, football stadium, and they put 75,000 people in there for a regular season game between the, the Bulls and Michael Jordan and the Atlanta Hawks, and it was uh, it was great. It, it, those the, the road games were amazing because everyone 
wanted to see Jordan do something extraordinary, but of course they wanted to see their home team win. And it, it was great. The atmosphere each game, uh, certainly in Chicago, was wonderful. But everywhere we went, the atmosphere was special. Wayne, uh, where can people find you? How can they follow you? Um, I mean, obviously Packers games, but uh, can they find you online? Can they find you on social media? Yeah, um, I do a blog during the football season, which will be starting up here soon on um, 620 WTMJ on their website. And then I do I, uh, uh, I do Twitter, at Wayne Larravee. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. Many thanks, as always, to uh, Wayne Larravee for joining us here on the podcast. As uh, Rich Spizak, my analyst, is here getting himself prepared for the broadcast. Rich, you want to say hi to the people? Hello, everybody. He's, he's very angry at me that I just did that. Uh, but <laughs> I'll wrap it up for another edition of Play-By-Play Cast this week. If you're uh, finishing up your minor league baseball seasons, uh, best of luck with that. If you're starting your college football seasons or your pro football seasons, uh, if we have any listeners in that area, uh, best of luck with that as well. As always, make sure uh, if you enjoy the podcast to uh, rate us on iTunes, let them know that you listen, uh, give us comments, reviews, anything like that. Always helps out when they know that people listen. Uh, and you can feel free to interact with the podcast as well on twitter at pxpcast or hashtag pxpcast you can hit me up as well at joel godet would love to hear from you and and always love when people uh let me know they listen because it helps move this thing forward Uh, but as always we appreciate your listenership they're playing the music which is our go home cue many thanks again to wayne larravee for joining us he was actually the first guy on this podcast who did it sight unseen and never heard of me had never spoken to me before did not know what play-by-play cast was and uh, still somehow agreed to do this podcast so thanks as always to wayne larrabee until next week when jb long will be our guest the new voice of the los angeles rams my name is joel cadet this is play-by-play cast and we're out yeah.